There's this one phrase of the Bible from Hebrews 4.12 that I think we've taken for granted. In the Christian Standard Bible, it reads, For the Word of God is living and effective, and sharper than any double-edged sword. I think we hear that phrase, and we imagine a simple process. People read the Bible, they understand the Bible, and then it makes a difference, for the better. But what if it's not that simple? Of course, we know what the Bible does for us. It corrects us. It inspires us. It leads us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to society at large, verses hit people in all sorts of different ways, depending on who you are, where you live, and when you live. And the Bible's played a pivotal role in the world. It's been effective. But that role isn't always as straightforward as we'd like to think it is. That verse, Hebrews 4.12, describes the Bible as a sharp double-edged sword. That means it's not going to flow smoothly along the contours of history. Sometimes it cuts against the grain, even when the church doesn't. Christianity Today and the Christian Standard Bible set out to make a podcast that explored the living and effective nature of God's Word. The idea behind this podcast was to try to get to the bottom of exactly what the role of Scripture was in some of the most pivotal moments in history. And I'm going to level with you. This has not gone the way we planned. Civil rights activists, especially Christians, are looking around at other believers and they're asking, are we reading the same Bible? These are not a series of feel-good stories. The Bible is used in all sorts of ways, and sometimes for not-so-righteous purposes. But we decided to focus on that tension and figure out exactly what it means that God's Word is effective. The printing press is, in fact, the entire story, and Luther is sort of the afterthought. In a world that contains atrocities like American slavery, when the church is divided among racial lines, when the world sees Christianity as uncool or a passing fad. When it happened, it was just like, this is just absolutely devastating because he wasn't Bob Dylan anymore. When the Bible is constantly misused, and when obeying the Bible seems nearly impossible in the moment. King received up to 40 death threats every day. And the answers to the problem of evil that he got from Protestant liberalism, he said the answers didn't come there. And then he said, I remember the God my father taught me about. We believe that the Bible is living and effective. But the question really is, effective at doing what? Hi, I'm Richard Clark. I'm a producer for CT Podcasts and an editor here. I've been at Christianity Today for about three years. Before that, I worked at a Southern Baptist seminary. I have two degrees in theology, and I grew up in a small town in Southeast Alabama, and every day on the way to school and work, I would see Confederate statue in the middle of an intersection. I would cross a railroad track. The trains that use that railroad track transported slaves through our town back in the days of slavery. And right behind my house on the other side of the block was a mansion that was owned by a Democratic politician who was a part of a group of people who supported slavery. So I've always been a little uncomfortable when I think about how Bible-believing Christians took part in slavery. But I've never really gotten to the bottom of exactly what was happening 
in that moment in history. I guess for me, for a while now, it's been relatively easy to just trust what the Bible says about itself, that it's working in the hearts of those who read it. But I've also just had some discomfort around how things have played out. For me, what the Bible did during the time of the Civil War and slavery has been somewhat of an abstraction. I don't think I've ever really had to grapple with the nature of Scripture's efficacy in that time. So while it's not the easiest choice, I think that question is probably a good place to start in this series. What I thought I'd be talking about in this episode was the ways that the Bible influenced people like Wilberforce and Nat Turner to overwhelm those who supported slavery and how those who supported slavery didn't really care about the Bible. Well, it's not exactly true. And the role of the Bible actually is pretty complicated when you look at it in this context. In fact, it's so complicated that when I asked Mark Knoll to come on the show to talk about its role in the time of the Civil War, he warned me that this might not be the most cut-and-dry way of demonstrating the effectiveness of the Bible. The very strong reliance of the United States culture and society on the Bible shrank. When people trusting the Bible couldn't agree on slavery, and Bible arguments defending slavery continue strong after the Civil War. If the South had won the Civil War, slavery would have kept going, and the South was as Bible-devoted as the North. The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, a podcast about the moments when humanity and the Bible collide. I'm not sure actually how I got interested in this topic, except that I was intrigued by how creative ministers were in the 1770s at applying the Bible in favor of the Patriot cause. So there was a lot of symbolism about Israel and its enemies, but now it's Britain that's Egypt, and the colonists are the children of Israel. Now, it, to me, as a Christian, it was not particularly persuasive. So you had a lot of sermons analogizing Britain as Egypt, America as Israel, but not very much argument, for example, in Romans 13. Should, mm-hmm. should, should you have a revolt? Well, there's a little bit. I mean, there are actually a couple, a couple good patriot sermons explaining how that should happen, uh-huh. and a couple of loyalist sermons explaining how it shouldn't. But overwhelmingly, it was this kind of metaphorical, analogical, typological use of the Bible. But the point that really got my interest and probably got me started on this was do, do, doing just a little bit of history of African-Americans. Now, what was the Bible angle for African-Americans? Just, I mean, not as many African-Americans read, and of course, there wasn't the opportunity to form churches until you get into the 19th century. But there were African-Americans reading the Bible, and they also analogized things, but the analogies were sometimes completely reversed from the patriots. So when Governor Dunbar in Virginia... The British governor said, if slaves you escape and come to the British side, you'll be free. Britain was immediately described as Israel, and the United States was described as Egypt. So you had a common reference to the Bible, both very forcefully, but an opposite application of biblical 
themes, not so much arguments here, but a couple Presbyterians, a man named Bourne, who actually got kicked out of the Presbyterian Church in Virginia for making these arguments in the 18-teens. He said, look, the Apostle Paul says there aren't going to be any man-stealers in heaven. Well, how, how can you have a slave system based upon stealing Africans from their tribal homelands and think you're going to go to heaven? Well, he just got kicked out of his church. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. And then 1829 or 30, David Walker, free slave in Boston, writes a, a, a blistering track, the appeal to the world on behalf of the colored people of the United States. And he, he, he just dives into the scriptures and say, American treatment of slaves is worse than Egyptians' treatment of the children of Israel. It's condemned throughout the Bible, and it just it doesn't work. And that, that was one of the very first really strong publicly recognized appeals to the Bible against slavery. And then you, you get some people associated with Charles Grandison Finney, man by the name of Theodore Dwight Weld. You eventually get the Beecher family. You get other people who said, that's right. You know, this, this, the Bible is against slavery. But as soon as that argument, those arguments take off, and they're based on things like the golden rule. Do unto others you have. Do you want to be enslaved? Do you want your kids to be enslaved? Well, don't you enslave people. That, those are powerful arguments. But they were not as powerful as ordinary people reading their King James Bible and say, look, Abraham had slaves. The Mosaic legislation gave regulations on the children of Israel keeping the enslaved people they captured from other tribes and passing their children of those slaves on as slaves. And then look at the New Testament. Jesus spoke against many, many problems, many, many sins. He didn't once mention slavery as a sin. And then there's the Apostle Paul. The book of Philemon is a book in which Paul is sending a slave back to his master. And then you have in the Pauline writer several other times, slaves obey your masters unto the Lord. What could be more obvious than that the Bible sanctioned slavery? So we're in the middle of like a pivotal moment in U.S. history, and it seems at first glance like the Bible is failing. If you were an African-American or an abolitionist at that time, you would be extremely frustrated. You'd be struggling to figure out like, wasn't the whole point of the Bible just to address this kind of issue? And if not, what is it doing? And if you, like me, believe that the Bible is living and effective, how does looking at what the Bible did in this point of history affect that truth? And if you didn't believe in the power of God's Word? This was actually one of the issues that kept me away from the faith. For me, when I, people try to engage me with Christianity, I, I could not move past that's the slave master's religion. That's Steve Patton. He's an itinerant preacher and curator for the Regeneration Project, where he's spoken a lot about the Bible's approach to slavery. Obviously, this was something he struggled with. He had a hard time with the fact that those who were the most dedicated to the Bible at that time were also supporters of slavery. Growing up as a strong, you know, ethnocentric African-American man, church and Christianese was kind of all around me. So were the FOI Muslims and, and some, some others. So I started following Jesus when I was 16. Uh, and it, was, uh, it wasn't until it was in my 20s where I started really saying, like, okay, I can't just say, oh, you know, we all sin and fall short of the glory when talking about something as massive as, you know, using the Bible to defend slavery. 
after everything Nolan said, I just felt like we needed something to remind us exactly what the Bible says about slavery. One of the biggest weaknesses of the biblical arguments people were making in that day was really just starting from a category error. Essentially ignoring or even completely missing the context in in which the Bible addressed slavery. What the transatlantic slave trade was would have been categorically rejected both in the New and the Old Testament, right? Just categorically rejected. First Timothy 1.10, uh, well, Paul, when he's listing off these people who are damned, right, he lists slave traders in there, right? Like, if you're a slave trader, like, you're going to hell. And then in the Old Testament, where it's in Exodus 21, where it talks about, um, you know, if you do take someone into this form of servitude, because uh, this was more of an economic thing, but by the way, God was trying to get his people to engage with this already existing cultural thing. He was trying to get them to engage with it in a way that would be radically different, right? So it says you can only even engage in this practice with people who are from like kind of around your region. You can't go to far off countries and bring slaves in. Like that was categorically rejected. You know, there was stuff like if a neighboring country, a slave runs away and then you know kind of comes among the people of God, don't send him back. You count him as free. Right. There, there was no bounty for, you know, catching slaves and, and sending them back. And no, you, they get there, you're free. He's free and you treat him like a brother. It turns out that God has always been at work to subvert slavery. But especially like in, in the Old Testament, the rules that God lays out for how he wants his people to engage in this practice is super subversive, especially if you look at it just kind of throughout the course of human history as they began to practice it. As, as God lays out these specific ways to interact with these people who would sell themselves into servitude or people who would be conquered and brought into servitude. The plan in the end, it was ultimately always to abolish it. Like if, if, if you look at if you look at the slave trade in that particular region among among the people, especially those those places where, you know, the, the Israelites were, by the time that all the tribes are scattered, slavery is basically done. It's done. It's it's a it's virtually a non issue at that point because in the way that they would engage with it, it started to crack from the inside. All of the power that the institution would start to hold, be it economic power, uh, be it positional power, the way that you began to engage with it is like, yeah, I could keep these slaves, but I got to keep paying them. And dad's dead. And uh, this is kind of just isn't our thing anymore. So I just might as well just just let him go free. You're saying that God like put in place systems that made <laughs> he disincentivized it, basically. Right. Yeah. So that whole thing was just a mind screw for me. I'm like, wait, okay, so there's a God gives a system for how to deal with slavery, brought his people out of slavery. Why not just abolish it altogether? But it's very subversive with God playing the long game because he has the ability to do that. <laughs> it's God playing the long game uh, to ultimately uh, disrupt it. And, and rather than just forcefully abolishing it, he sends his people. Uh, amidst all the other peoples of the of the known world, and shows them how to engage with this system in a way that's radically disruptive. Okay, so we can acknowledge that God has a plan to obliterate slavery, and that eventually that plan works. But when it comes to how God deals with evil in the world, great, substantial, epic evil, is subversion in the long game really what we want to hear when it comes to how God deals with an evil as great as slavery? Well, depending on what we're talking about, if we're talking about like what was happening then for God to send his people into a system to uh, disrupt and ultimately uh, dismantle that system. Yeah, especially the, the way that they were playing it, because it, like, it wasn't like 
right? God, God said this thing and all the peoples of the earth had to listen. They're like, no, he, he had like this one nation, right? He had this one group of folks and they had to be the ones to kind of proliferate that out to everyone else. My struggle with this kind of thing is, you know, books like Philemon, it feels like people like looked at it and said, you know, face value, this is giving me permission. This is condoning the things we're doing. Yeah, you can do that when you're when you're reading your own cultural bias into it. And then that allows you to kind of just skip over parts where he says like, yeah, when you receive him, treat him like you treat me. Right. What if the slave masters who profess to be Christians, you know, looked at all of the slaves and said, wait, I got to treat you like I would treat Paul. Oh, wait. The whole system would be would have been very different had they actually even applied that. Trying to make a clear-eyed biblical case when you're blinded by money is very hard. That's what Wilberforce was up against when he was trying to abolish slavery. Right, he realized that he was up against people's pockets. Like that's what. It, like no, we can, we're trying to overturn this, and he was committed, you know, fueled by the gospel to bring an end to it. But he knew he was fighting against people's money, and that was a problem. For me, the wildest case, for like with Christians engaging with this issue of slavery, the wildest case was up in New England, right? You got the Puritans in Boston, writing all of this great theology, and they're hanging people in the public square, and they're okay with being slave owners. But then you come down, it's a, today it's about an hour drive, you come to Newport, Rhode Island, which was kind of, at the time, the home of the transatlantic slave trade, you know, as much as 90% of the transatlantic slave trade was going through Newport, Rhode Island. And you had the Quakers. They were not theologically robust. They did not believe in inherently the scripture. They did not believe that, you know, that that's the thing that's the ultimate authority. But they did fully believe in, you know, love your neighbor. And they could not shake love your neighbor. And seeing what's coming in and happening down at the ports right there in Newport, Rhode Island. And the, the, Quaker, the Quaker meeting house, they would meet there for prayer in their abolitionist meetings. Now, they were not theologically robust folks. They, they, they were not what these dudes were doing up in Boston. They just couldn't shake, love your neighbor, and what was coming in off the boat. So they stood there to fight for the abolition of slavery in Newport, and they won. Newport was the first place to legally abolish slavery. It was still happening, but like the, the, big, the first big punch that needed to land, it landed. And they weren't making, you know, big, clear-eyed theological statements about it. They just couldn't shake, love your neighbor. No man can serve two masters. If God be God, then serve him. But if mammon be God, then serve him. Uh, there was a lot of people that, in trying to establish themselves in the new world, they were more committed to mammon than they were to the scriptures. A lot of them weren't looking for a spiritual defense as much as they were just looking for an excuse to keep doing what they were doing because it was comfortable and they were making money. Right, the humans suck, <laughs> right? Like, if, if, especially if you come from a theological, uh, a, you know, theological background that lets you hold tightly to this idea of depravity. You can see that depravity really playing out just even in their approach to try to use the scriptures uh, to defend this heinous act. But in the end, do I think people truly use the Bible to defend slavery? And the answer is yes. But did they truthfully use the Bible to defend slavery? And the answer is no.
So that's the catch. I mean, God wasn't coy about his opinions on slavery. He wasn't hiding something. You could argue that the Bible is as clear as it could possibly be in a way that it confronted cultural assumptions about slavery and obliterated any racist or greedy argument we'd make against it. But when it comes to getting our own way by misunderstanding the Bible, human beings are always going to find a way. And that means when it comes down to it, the biggest obstacle to our understanding of the Bible might just be our assumptions. The greatest example of that in my mind would be a Jonathan Edwards. I talked to the Bidi Anyabwile. He's a pastor at Anacostia River Church, and he's written a bunch of books about this subject. Edwards is as prodigious and intellectual as America has ever produced. He seemed to write on almost everything except slavery. It's Edwards with the academic theology. It's Edwards with the voluminous theology. It's Edwards with the sometimes intellectually sublime theology. But that proves quite worthless, doesn't it, on the biggest issue of his day. For evangelical Christians, Jonathan Edwards is a really big deal. He's known as one of the greatest preachers of all time. One of the most uncomfortable things to realize about this time in the church's history is that it was also the context for what we call the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards is credited with providing the philosophical and theological underpinnings of the Great Awakening. I'll admit this, I don't get it. It kind of freaks me out. Is it really possible that a time marked by spiritual enlightenment and the salvation of many is also marked by apathy and ambivalence towards slavery? Well, yeah. In fact, Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is one of the most renowned sermons from that period of time. It may have also been the most effective in leading his hearers to repentance and kicking off that period of revival. But just three weeks after calling his congregation to repentance, he sat down at his desk and wrote a defense of an unrepentant slave-owning pastor. What we have from Jonathan Edwards is an outline of his thoughts on slavery, which were to be used in defense of a minister who didn't share Edwards' theology, was, was a theological opponent, and who was about to be fired by his congregation, and the Minister's Association there in Northampton tapped Edwards um, to make the defense of him. Now, in Edwards' sketching of a kind of biblical theology of slavery, he seems orthodox enough, but he was answering the question from the perspective of a fairly aristocratic, you know, Connecticut River gods, as they were called, pastorate, and, and his loyalty to the pastorate in protecting even a theological enemy was greater in his mind, I think, than the, the sort of explication and application of that biblical theology. I guess you could say theologically he was distracted from the issue. Or to put it in sharper terms, he was a hypocrite on this point. That accusation of hypocrisy would have hit Edwards pretty hard. There's a particular kind of irony here. Edwards' defense of this pastor owning slaves rested primarily on accusations of hypocrisy on the part of those who Edwards was disagreeing with. He essentially pointed out the degree to which those people who accused the pastor also benefited from slave ownership. Now, Edwards might think the revivals were the biggest issue of his day, but, but socially speaking, the developing biggest issue of Edwards' day is the slave trade. And he missed it. He gave no attention to it in his life. And many evangelicals missed it, gave very little attention to it in their lives, 
and still some others just got it wrong. They gave attention to it, but in precisely the wrong direction. I'm not sure what to do with all of this. Not only was one of the most important American theologians actively complicit, one of America's greatest evils of all time, this all happened smack in the middle of the Great Awakening. And slavery ended because of a war, not a Bible verse. So if the Bible isn't actively putting an end to slavery, what's it doing? So one thing is the Lord is judging his church. So Abraham Lincoln doing that public theology that, that he does in the aftermath of the Civil War, understands the Civil War had been a judgment. Many people before the Civil War were predicting judgment because of the country's sin in, in slavery and the slave trade. And so the Lord is, the Lord is judging, and, and that judgment begins at the household of God, but it also expands to the entire country. And so that, that's part of what the Lord is doing. The Lord is, to put it another way, he's, he's sifting the true church from the false. I would contend that a lot of what's called evangelical Christianity is apostate Christianity. It's, it's not authentic just because we call it evangelical. It's a distinction that Frederick Douglass would make between slaveholding Christianity and true Christianity. And so I think the Lord is, is making that really clear, that there's a, there's a thing that calls itself Christian that actually denies the power of the gospel. And there's a thing that looks despised and utterly weak, which indeed is Christian, which is what the Lord prefers according to 1 Corinthians, right? So I think he's, he's judging and, 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 and discriminating and, and uh, distinguishing. The thing that surprises me here is like no one, no one of note was really getting this right when it comes to reading the Bible and seeing what it should be saying. And some of this stuff to us and with modern eyes is pretty clear. The question I have, I guess, is like if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound? Is there anything good happening? You frame the question in terms of nobody of note is hearing it. And I would say, despite all of the distraction and all of the, the errant teaching and the self-serving teaching of slaveholding society, indeed, lots of slaves heard it. It's the underside of society that often hears the Bible in more accurate and liberating and spiritually renewing ways. That's true in Jesus's own ministry. It's the poor and the marginalized, the broken. It's women. And I think that's true in, in the American experience. So it's not that the Bible's not being heard, but it is not being heard by the elite. On the one hand, God is growing his church. So the Lord makes that promise in Matthew 16. He's keeping that promise even down to today. I mean, the, the greatest miracle of Christianity in America is the conversion of African people to Christian faith. that the slave would actually see the truth in the slaveholder's religion and embrace that truth and make it his own uh, and shave off some of the slaveholder's errors and emphases in, in order to walk with Jesus. That, that is the most amazing miracle of the new world. And so that person who's looking at Christianity and saying, well, this, you know, its failures is proof of its falsehood. I'm like, no, 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 the converts are proof of its power and its genuineness. Are you kidding me? It turns out that some who would stress salvation were missing pretty badly on questions of ethics and piety. But at the same time, those who were suffering from that pretty terrible breach of ethics were miraculously experiencing salvation. A wave of Christian awakening was happening in the hearts of the enslaved. 
As Christians, we want the Bible to be effective. And not just be effective. We want it to be effective in ways that make us feel good, in ways that make us the key player here. We want it to be effective in our lives, in the lives of people like us. We want heroic stories of great people doing wonderful things because of the Bible. But that's not always the case. Sometimes what the Bible is doing is different than what we're trying to do. Sometimes the Bible is thwarting us, not improving our lives. Sometimes the Bible is judging us, not helping us to be better people. Sometimes the Bible is working, but in places we're not even looking. Always know that, that God is up to good and uh, that he's at work in the world. And we should pray that we would be able to discern it and join him in it. Or that he would take our weak and ineffective witness and do more with it than, than we can conceive at the moment. That may not be enough to completely satisfy me, but it's enough to show me that God's word out in the world isn't made void. And it works in salvific ways in the hearts of those who are truly willing to be humbled and who are willing to truly, really, actually take up their cross. Whether we're humbled by the world or whether we have to actively humble ourselves, Scripture is not hiding the truth from us. If we're not able to see it, well, that's on us. The Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as to divide soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It is a judge of the ideas and thoughts of the heart. On the next episode of Living and Effective, Scripture cuts to the heart. It judges us. It's not something to be used lightly or carelessly. So what happens when, suddenly, the Bible becomes a large-scale cultural phenomenon? 120,000 kids packed the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, and, and you had Billy Graham and Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash. It seemed for a moment in time as though Jesus could be a thing that would bring the nation together rather than tear it apart. This has been Living and Effective. You can find more info at www.livingandeffective.com. Make sure and rate and review us on iTunes to help us spread the word. Living and Effective is a collaboration between Christianity Today and Christian Standard Bible. It is written and produced by me, Richard Clark, an editor at Christianity Today, and Cray Allred. Executive producers are Nick Reinerson and me, Richard Clark. Engineering by Jonathan Clausen. Music by Sweeps and the Always People. Special thanks to Trevin Wax, Brandon Smith, James Kennard, Michael Wojcik, Jennifer Clark, Morgan Lee, Natalie Lederhouse, Derek Rishmaui, Alicia Sharp, Ted Olson, and Mark Galley.